romantic, so romantic, that I often wish I had a more discreet heart. But believe me, please believe me, when I tell you that I haven't got a sweetheart. Do you mean to say that you had none? Did you hear me say that I had none? No, I only said I haven't won. Welcome to episode 11 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. This time I'm looking at The Devil is a Woman from 1935. It was the last of seven pictures Joseph von Sternberg made with Marlena Dietrich. Paramount executives would destroy every copy in their archive. After Spanish officials objected to the film's depiction of men in their military and police as bumbling incompetence, easily manipulated by a woman. Luckily, Marlena Dietrich kept a pristine copy in her safe, which enabled further copies to be made and for the film to survive. Marlena said in her memoir it was her favorite film because she looks so beautiful, and she does. If you've ever wondered how to wear a shawl or a veil, consider this picture your optimal tutorial. Marlena wears one or both in every scene, which enhances her character's ability to conceal her motives and conduct subterfuge against an unsuspecting man of power. Marlena's the queen of man traps, an absolute delight. If the mantra of ladies in the pre-code era was that men's pockets couldn't be emptied fast enough, Marlena carries on the tradition beyond the Hayes Code and makes a grand spectacle of it. In a flashback scene, when Marlena, in a train trapped and buried under snow from an avalanche, when Captain um, Don Pasquale, played by Lionel Atwell, first meets her and reflects on, on meeting the woman who bewitched him, she's glamorous even when she's dressed in what appears to be a somber black nun's habit. It shields her from the cold until she's annoyed enough at a gypsy dancer to trip and then throttle the woman for fraying her nerves in close quarters. Glamour often hinges more on attitude than aesthetics. Joseph Breen of the Production Code Office objected to the film on the grounds that it depicted, quote, a successful and progressive prostitution. His suggestion to salvage the film on moral grounds was to have Don Pasquale shoot and kill Marlena or choke her to death at the end to punish her for her misdeeds. That example right there gives you every insight into how Breen and the Hayes Code functioned. Killing a woman was considered morally upright, but a woman who takes money from a man to live in exchange for sexual favors threatens civilization. But the tacked-on moment of reform towards dutiful monogamy at the end fails to diminish Dietrich acting like an absolute nutbuster for every other minute of this film's runtime. Every single scene Marlena's Concha Perez has with a man is highly orchestrated to manage his response and her favorable return. Marlena preens, pouts, and plays the coquette until her target, Don Pasquale, is besotted and as intoxicated as he would be with any vintage wine. The annual carnival celebration in southern Spain leaves the viewer feeling a bit dizzy from all the overwhelming sensory feast on display. Music, streamers, balloons, costumes, gigantic papier-mâché caricature heads, barnyard animals, pottery, and decorative wrought iron situate depth and contour in every possible configuration on screen. There are so many men in fake noses during the carnival that I bet Laurence Olivier and Orson Welles fell into a swoon of envy. 
In many ways, von Sternberg's film offers an ode to textiles. Every fabric in creation receives key focus in photography that captures flight of fancy in contour and drape. Tulle, crinoline, lace, velvet, silk, cotton, broderie anglaise, linen, brocade, jacquard, all are presented in a rich tapestry of texture. Travis Banton's design offer open interpretation of setting, mood, purpose, and style impression for an audience. Truly, Banton's costumes in this picture are a character in their own right. The costumes move the plot forward with exquisite detail. Marlena alternates all-black and all-white ensembles to keep the men guessing about her true motivation. If we could choose only a few examples for a time capsule to show future beings what costume should do for a character in film, this must be featured before it's buried or shot into space. In her memoir, Marlena wrote of the working relationship between von Sternberg, Travis Banton, and herself. They worked together on several films, she wrote. The crowning achievement of this collaboration was the costumes in The Devil is a Woman, in my view, the most beautiful film ever made. Von Sternberg always reserved the right to accept or reject what Travis and I, always following his instructions rather freely, had thought up. We worked during lunch, between takes, and until late at night. By then, Travis and I were experts in fighting off fatigue, perhaps because we both adored von Sternberg. When she first appears in a gigantic veil dotted with black shirred chenille pom-poms sewn over black chiffon that trails behind her in a train, offset with matching black lace gloves and a mask, we are so consumed by her accessories that you don't have enough time to notice her gown. She doles out the smallest bit of encouragement to lustic Cesar Romero by kissing her fingertip. He looks more dashing than Zorro in a mask, cape, and bolero hat. In the cigarette factory, as she prepares the paper rolls, Marlena has her hair pulled back and dressed with fresh flowers that look still damp with summer morning dew. Her dress, a heart-shaped neckline, and full cotton skirt looks like she rummaged in Frida Kahlo's wardrobe. She's the spit of Kahlo's style in this scene. She teases Lionel Atwell's Captain Don Pasquale as she notices him drooling over the young women workers. He tosses Concha a gold coin, which Marlena snatches and bites as though it were a lamb chop. The way she pronounces gold with a wide mouth and rolled tongue adds to the relish of a poor woman who's already tasting the feast that is sure to follow. Look at Marlena's costume for the banger number Three Sweethearts Have I, a mix of peasant and disco queen. It isn't the most dramatic ensemble, like, say, the one she wears when the two jealous lovers meet, or when she visits Don Pasquale to petition his mercy. Perhaps because it's simplified, it adds to the joy Marlena exhibits during the song. With metallic glitter balls festooning the pom-poms of her shawl, and two enormous hair slides coated in silver sequins, a crystal-studded lace-up bodice, and a three-tiered multicolor can-can skirt hemmed short in the front, Marlena appears unfurled and let loose from heavy layers of styling. She croons about the son of a gardener, a farmer, and a baker, men whose daily spoils furnish her delight. 
Three men who work with their hands offer the goddess fitting tribute with flowers, vegetables, and bread. Marlena reminisced, if von Sternberg had filmed in color, the results would certainly have been the ne plus ultra of good taste, clever effects, and radiant beauty. Many may remember The Devil is a Woman, the last film he made with me, as being shot in color. This, of course, was not the case, but the images it created are so rich in light, shadows, and half-tones that one easily thinks it's in color. You can detect the red on the ruffles of her voluminous skirt and in the flowers in her hair during the cigarette factory scene. Some of the white ensembles are so carefully lit that they feel like they're ice blue, the way they absorb a prism of hues. Von Sternberg paints the screen with so much variation on light that we do indeed see color. When Captain Pasqual tossed Concha the gold coin, it earned him an invitation to the tiny flat she shares with her mother, Senora Perez, played by Alison Skipworth. The Senora sizes up the money bags her daughter ushers in, and just like her daughter, the mother has an uncanny knack for knowing just what a man wants to hear. She worries over Concha falling in with bad influence at the cigarette factory. She shakes her head and tut-tuts over a bit of patriarchal, homespun wisdom. She tells the captain, What makes young girls go wrong, Your Excellency, is the advice of women, not the eyes of men. Never once was that aphorism said for anyone else's benefit but that of a man. I repudiate outright any description which stems from retrograde misogyny. Concha Perez is not a temptress, a black widow, one of Homer's sirens bent on destruction, a gold digger, or any other reductive mudslinging. Concha and her mother merely recognize what their audience desires. Men in power like Captain Pasqual pay handsome sons to be made a submissive, a cuckold, a fool by women. The man with an army at his command can hardly claim victimhood. Concha trades in fantasy, illusion, and allure. She concocts a heady brew for men who seek her out. Time and again, she flees his reach and hides away, only to have him track her down in a month or three in time. Concha packs more drama than opera season, and Pasqualito holds a box seat. What kind of halfwit could mistake Concha's act of jealousy as anything else than a performance to flatter a silly admirer? Concha falls in his lap, kisses, then slaps him. When Pasqual demands an explanation, she says, I kissed you because I loved you for a minute. She can't go on doing so without a pledge of love from him in return. When Marlena stamps around, bellowing, I am not the only one, am I, Pasqualito? Only the most vain and self-deluded middle-aged man could interpret it as sincerely felt. She's just giving him his money's worth, a gratuity for the gold coin that filled the pantry and paid the bills. After the first visit, Pasquale tells Cesar Romero's character, Antonio, that he returned 30 times to see Concha, and each time her mother said she was out with her cousin or at dance practice. When he finally confesses to Mrs. Perez that he's in love with Concha and wants to be her protector to look after her education and provide for her, Mrs. Perez relieves him of a pile of cash. His meetings with Concha all involve a cash transaction, so how was he deceived? 
Pasquale learns that his money does not bring him control over Concha, not even when he offers marriage. He tells her, I want to make you my wife. No one will speak ill of you. But nobody speaks ill of me now, she counters innocently. And if they do, Concha could not care less. When he's desperate and offers money outright, she directs him to her mother, who always needs money so badly. Concha taunts the military official with confident declarations such as, a jealous man is no more dangerous than a blind bull. She certainly wields enough cape and veil like any matador to haunt him, red rag to the bull. The delicate balance she maintains, embodying all things each man wants, Concha demonstrates that being a woman is an art, but it's also hard work. A woman must be as clear and yet opaque as the clouds in the sky. Give men what they yearn for, fulfill their desires, if you find within it a path to your own pleasure. By the end of the picture, Marlena, dressed in a veil, cape, and wide-brim hat, looks like an adventurer who lives by the sword. When she asks the driver for a smoke, she waxes nostalgic about having worked in a cigarette factory. She climbed out of an impoverished life to be a grand lady by her own wit and heroism. Cesar Romero has never looked so dashing, Marlena never more radiant. In Joseph von Sternberg's memoir, Fun in a Chinese Laundry, he recalls that he built scene after scene in an exact pattern, as though he were, quote, a computing machine with only the audience in mind. Sternberg credits Lubitsch with the film title when he was still head of production at Paramount. Ernest Lubitsch thought that the original title, The Woman and the Puppet, was too dull, as was Capriccio Espanol, which was um, von Sternberg's preference. Gerald Peary conducted a highly exclusive interview with Joel McRae in 1982 during the Telluride Film Festival. He was the only journalist to score an interview with a reticent leading man. McRae recalled when he was initially cast as Marlena's co-star in the film. I quote from the interview, Strong, Righteous, and Rustic, available online at the Bright Lights Film Journal website. In 1935, the always mild McRae had his only major run-in with a director. At Paramount, he was cast opposite Marlena Dietrich and The Devil's a Woman. McRae said, I had a scene in a cafe. I clap and ask for a cup of coffee. I guess it was Spain, and I said Garcon or something. His role lasted one day because he ran afoul of ultra-perfectionist director Joseph von Sternberg. McRae remembers von Sternberg. He was a little guy. He said, do you drink coffee? We did 35 takes. He said, that's not the way to ask for coffee. You are not getting it over. Then the next morning, he said, I looked at the rushes and there's nothing I can do. I said, that's fortunate. I don't want anything to do with you. The next thing, Cesar Romero was doing the part. McRae refused to continue, even when Dietrich took him aside and explained the predictability of Sternberg's rudeness. He speaks to me in German and calls me an old cow, Dietrich told McRae. Just ignore him. Although von Sternberg had indeed been sacked at the end of the picture, and the picture bombed at the box office, and men like David O. Selznick lamented what it did to Dietrich's star power, the film has aged into a classic. I'd argue that it's the best of the films they made together. This one is playful and fun, and Marlena doesn't spend her time suffering in the shadows. 
I'll close the episode with an excerpt from Marlena by Marlena Dietrich about um, her time making the film. In 1935, after his return from a long trip, von Sternberg began preparations for The Devil's a Woman, based on the novel The Woman and the Puppet by Pierre Louise. I knew that this would be our last film together, and I was as restless as a sack of fleas. Von Sternberg noticed this and once more tried to reassure me. I played the part of a girl who worked in a cigarette factory. At his request, I had taken lessons and learned to roll cigarette paper around a little stick. I also learned to make the empty paper rolls swirl around in front of the camera, catch them again, and stuff them with tobacco. This was not easy, but I was a good pupil. It wasn't these little tricks that worried me most, however, but the fact that I absolutely didn't look Spanish. The Spanish lace blouse and the pleated skirt didn't convince me. There was nothing Iberian about my blue eyes and blonde hair. But my biggest worry were my eyes. I thought that all Spaniards had dark, if not black, eyes. My hair was rubbed with Vaseline so that it would look dark enough to me. Von Sternberg said that I was very stupid, as always, because there were plenty of blonde women in northern Spain. How was I supposed to know that? So I continued with preparations for the film. I tried on the costume sketched by von Sternberg and worried further about the color of my eyes. Finally, I visited an eye doctor whom my makeup artist had recommended. He prescribed drops that widened the pupils so that they would appear black on the screen. Then he gave me a second bottle containing a liquid that would restore the pupils to their normal size. On the way home, I pressed the bottles against myself as though they were made of gold. I took them with me to the studio, explained their use to my makeup artist and my hairdresser. The Vaseline had been rubbed into my hair. The carnations, which had increased in number in the course of shooting, were pinned on. And I felt I had been transformed into a genuine Spanish woman, apart from my eyes. But stupidly, I believed I could remedy this annoying minor detail. With swaying dress, combs and the sticky hair between the artificial carnations, my face made up darkly, which made me more attractive than ever. I arrived punctually at the studio at 9 o'clock in the morning. I remember exactly. I used my little bottle only after the rehearsal. I went to my dressing room, sprinkled the drops in my eyes, and returned to my place, ready to shoot the scene. I looked for my essentials, the paper and the stick, but they were no longer there. Von Sternberg shouted to the cameraman, Let is roll! And I just stood there and could no longer find my tiny stick and paper. Everything was functioning perfectly except my eyes. I acted as though everything was in order, but von Sternberg immediately noticed that something was wrong. Cut, he roared. The hairdresser and makeup artist ran over to my dressing room and brought me the other little bottle with the drops that were supposed to restore my pupils to their normal size. I dripped the liquid in my eyes and resumed my place on the set. The whole thing had lasted for more than maybe five minutes. I again sat down at the table, from which I had suddenly stood up in a daze. I saw everything as from a great distance, a very great distance. The technicians, von Sternberg, but no matter what I did, it was impossible to recognize anything directly in front of me. No stick, no paper, no tobacco.
Von Sternberg sent us all out to lunch, but before that, he took me by the hand and pulled me away from the extras and technicians out of earshot and then said, now tell me what's the matter. I told him everything. I wasn't seeing things normally. I simply couldn't help crying. Why didn't you tell me you wanted black eyes, he asked me. I didn't know what to answer. Do you want black eyes, he persisted. I nodded. Fine, then you'll have black eyes, but don't ever use anything like those drops without first asking me. He made my eyes look darker simply by the way he played with the light. Some of my biographers stubbornly claim that The Devil is a Woman is an autobiographical film. In Europe, where the Luis novel is well known, no one has dared to make so improbable an assertion, all the more so because the story has been often filmed. Yet, although the film sticks strictly to the Pierre Louis story, several periodicals in the United States gave the impression that von Sternberg had drawn his inspiration from his life and mine. Von Sternberg, annoyed by all the fruitless discussions, had had enough. He decided to separate himself from me. Naturally, I protested strongly against his intention, became angry, and decided I would leave Hollywood and never come back. But he told me loud and clear that such a prospect was out of the question, that if I wanted him to still be his friend, I had to stay in Hollywood and make films without him. These words broke my heart, but I obeyed as always. At what price? I was like a rudderless ship. I realized that no fame could replace the security that he had given me, that nothing could compensate for his extraordinary intelligence, his professional ethics, the fascination that he exercised. But von Sternberg didn't abandon me completely. He secretly supervised the mediocre films I made subsequently. Sometimes he would even sneak into the studio and cut out particular scenes or make changes. I myself organized the nightly exploratory forays. Von Sternberg's resignation stood to reason. He had had enough of scandals, attacks, of the behavior of the Paramount executives. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time when I talk about um, Kay Francis in Mandalay. Thanks very much. Bye. I got an island in the Pacific And everything about it is terrific I got the sun to talk